0: The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. This podcast is sponsored by the Rene S. Real State Agency located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneeessary at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host Jason Galvin. Hello and welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. Tonight we're going to be sharing the story of James Dale Feltz, who served in the US Navy from 1942 to 1946. Jim was born in St. Louis. He lived at 2315 Wheaton Avenue when he registered for the draft in about 1946. His employer information on the draft card states, Unemployed, just discharged from the U.S. Navy, 2-8-1946. His parents were John Robert Feltz, 1888-1949, uh, to 1949, and Alice Irene Feltz-Clark, 1896-1991. to 1991. He had two brothers, John and Charles, and one sister, Juanita. They lived in St. John's, Missouri, in St. Louis County. In the summer of 1940, Jim started working at a gas station. Jim decided to quit high school in his freshman year and begin working full-time. Jim lied about his age when he went to work at a dollar store in Overland. It is there he would meet his future wife, Betty Neemiller. Jim enlisted in 8 June 1942. He was 17 years old. At that time, if you joined the Navy as a minor at 17, you served four years and got credit for six. Jim reported to basic training at Great Lakes Naval Training Center. He was making $20 a month. Later that year, Jim reported to Brooklyn, New York. In August of 1942, Jim received orders to report to the USS Plunkett. The Plunkett was a Gleaves-class destroyer capable of 37 knots or 42 miles per hour. The Plunkett was a New Age-type destroyer that the March 1941 issue of Popular Science dubbed Light Cavalry of the Sea. The 431st destroyer built. The destroyers were the tip of the spear, the grunts. Destroyers would screen the more valuable ships. The first year of his time on the USS Plunkett was spent in the North Atlantic on convoy escort duty. Early in the war, they worked in conjunction with the British ships. They would interject themselves between heavier ships and the enemy. They were charged with the task of keeping submarines away from the fleet or convoy. Submarine commanders feared destroyers and the smaller destroyer escorts. They were typically two squadrons of destroyers. A squadron is normally three to ten ships. Their squadron include destroyers and destroyer escorts. Destroyer and escorts have responsibility for about a thousand miles. At the beginning and end of a convoy route, they had air cover. As the range of planes improved, the ships could break off the convoy sooner. In early November, a convoy of nine ships would depart Brooklyn inbound for Africa in Operation Torch. In Jim's first few months aboard the Plunkett, he convoyed across the Atlantic twice as a deckhand and each time as part of a troop ship ferry bound for Scotland. On one of these trips, the seas were heavy and rough. Jim was on a wing of the bridge on the lookout with binoculars. He announced to the officer on deck, I'm going to be sick. Not on my watch, the officer said, and sent him off the bridge. Jim vomited on the ladder on his way down from the bridge and again on the deck, this time into the North Atlantic. During the first few months as an apprentice seaman, Jim had been sleeping in a hammock tied up in the mess. He had to rise before the first round of breakfast and could not retire until everyone had supper, and sometimes a movie. Besides the bad sleeping conditions, the duties were also difficult. Jim was constantly painting while the ship was at sea, and while in port, he was chipping paint. Jim made it known he wanted to be in the electrician's department. When a job opened in the forward fire department, the engineering officer offered him a chance to join the crew at least until the opportunity opened in the electrician's department. Jim was now a member of the Black Gang. The Black Gang are the members of the ship's crew who work in the fire room or engine room. They are also called stokers or firemen. They are called black because of the soot and coal dust that is thick in the air in the fire or engine room. The term came into use in the days of the coal-fired steamships and included coal-fired ships in World War II. Jim had entered the engineering department with a bit of notoriety established. Jim, while on lookout on a trip from Scotland a couple of months ago, reported a periscope. When he reported the sighting, the officer on deck called all hands to General Quarters. The bridge jumped on the talk-between ships, the TBS, alerting the convoy of the proximity of a U-boat. The ship moved towards the periscope position, readying for an attack with depth charges. It was discovered that the reported periscope was a handle of a broom or a mop, probably dropped overboard by another ship in the convoy and floating vertically. Feltz settled into his new accommodations and began to learn about his department mates. The crew of the Plunkett were escorting ships for their first of five invasions during World War II. Day after day, Plunkett and the destroyers would patrol along the edges of the convoy watching for U-boats. On 8 November 1942, the first waves of Operation Torch hit the beaches of French Morocco. Operation Torch was the Allied invasion of French North Africa during the Second World War. The French colonies in the area were dominated by the French, formally aligned with Germany but of mixed loyalties. Reports indicated that there might be support for the Allies. American General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in the European Theater, planned a three-pronged attack on Casablanca, which was the western, Oran, the center, and Algiers, the eastern, and then a rapid move to Tunis. The next destination for the Plunkett and the Allies would be Sicily, Operation Husky. The Plunkett would be protecting the convoy and supplies for the upcoming invasion on D-Day, 10 July 43. On the eve of the attack, as troop transport planes passed low overhead, some of Plunkett's sailors tried counting the planes. A second front on the continent of Europe would soon be opened. At this time, the convoy was constantly on alert for enemy planes. Jim's job, besides firemen, was the after-repair party just beneath the fantail, which is the rounded overhanging part of the stern of a vessel, especially a warship, poised to pounce at any moment's notice. It was his group's job to mitigate damage to the ship from shell, bomb, torpedo, or near-miss. Mostly, the Plunkett's damage control parties were trained to fight fire. The Plunkett and other ships were constantly under attack from enemy planes. Lieutenant General George S. Patton was now ashore in Sicily. It was his 7th Army they'd landed in Sicily. After nearly two weeks on Sicily, Patton's troops took Palermo, and the Navy, including the Plunkett, moved to a new base. The crew had been at battle stations for 32 hours. On the last night of July... Plunkett anchored southeast of the entrance to Palermo's harbor. Liberty ships and soldiers of the 9th Infantry rode out the night at Anchorage. German fighters dropped flares over the harbor, illuminating ships off of Plunkett's port bow. 48 of the Luftwaffe planes eluded Allied radar and attacked the anchored ships, mounting a surprise attack. Wave after wave of aircraft dove on the ships. Targets were now blipping all over the fire control radar. One plane was flying erratically through the curtain of an anti-aircraft fire wobbling, his wings from side to side. Suddenly, the plane disappeared. It was gone with no explanation. The gun crews conferred, trying to determine whether it was a bogey or ours. They asked if anyone had seen a marking. There was much confusion. They had been having all sorts of problems coordinating communications between Allied aircraft and Navy ships off Sicily. That night, the Plunkett's crew went ashore, and the British were all over them confirming what the battery commander feared. You shot down a friendly, a British plane. The author of Unsinkable, James Sullivan, called Friendly Fire the elephant in the ward room. There are no exact numbers how many soldiers died during World War II due to friendly fire, but it was an elephant in the room. There are no exact numbers how many soldiers died during World War II due to friendly fire, but it was the elephant in the room. There are no exact numbers how many soldiers died during World War II due to friendly fire, but it was a significant concern for all parties involved. The estimated rate of friendly fire deaths for all U.S. troops in World War II was 12 to 14%. So as soon as communication failed, which it did often in war, Friendly fire was bound to happen. Some call it the fog of war. Fog of war is a reality in all military conflicts. The crew members of the Plunkett would be haunted by the misidentified plane on 31 July for a long time. Jim got leave into Palermo in late summer. The town was in shambles after a 7th Army had passed through. He made his way to the Red Cross Club hoping to snag a donut. Jim got his donut and hung around to listen to some music. He spent a great deal of time thinking of Betty while on his leave. While messing around with an Ouija board there, he developed an eerie feeling something was about to happen and that he wouldn't make it home to Betty. Sicily fell after 38 days. Plunkett swept the northwest coast of the island. The Germans and Italians were gone. Then the ship got underway for Palermo in their next assignment. The destroyers would spend time laying a smokescreen to hide the convoy along the Italian coast. At 0130 Plunkett stopped zigzagging and commenced firing at targets on the Italian mainland. It was the first time that American ships had bombed continental Europe. Operation Avalanche was the code name for the allied landings near the port of Salerno, executed on 9 September 1943, which was part of the allied invasion of Italy. Through the first two days of the invasion, Plunkett would patrol a section of the sea guarding the southern entrance of the Gulf The Luftwaffe was flying sorties attacking the ships and strafing the beaches. German U-boats worked over the ships at the fringe of the transport areas. On 9 September, the USS Ronin entered the Gulf of Salerno in the screen of the Southern Attack Force. As the assault force and supplies were landed at Pastium, she screened the transports and freighters. Late on the night of the 10th, she headed back to Oran with the emptied ships. Shortly after midnight, German e-boats attacked. Rowan pursued and fired. Then, as her quarry pulled away, ceased firing and changed course to rejoin the convoy. Within five minutes, a new contact was made. Range less than 3,000 yards. Again, she changed course to avoid torpedoes and bring her guns into position. On the deck of the Plunkett, an orange blast blazed on the horizon. Rowan was hit by a torpedo by a German e-boat. An was the Western Allies designation for the German fast-attack surface crafts during World War II. The Rowan sank in less than a minute, taking 202 of her 273 officers and men with her, those whose bodies were not recovered and were listed as missing in action for a year and a day after the sinking. They were considered officially dead on 12 September 1944. Later, the crew of the Plunkett learned the victim of the blast was the USS Rowan, a sister destroyer. The USS Savannah was a light cruiser supporting the Allied landings on Sicily and at Salerno. On 11 September 1943, the crew of the Plunkett and many others would witness the debut of the E-bomb. The 660-pound bomb sported fins and was dropped by high levels bombers, guided to their target by radio control. The men aboard watched in both amazement and horror as the E-bomb struck the USS Savannah just forward of the bridge. Little did they know they would be trying to outrun an E-bomb in the days ahead. It was the largest bomb to hit a Navy ship during World War II. The bomb caused extensive casualties, killing 197 and causing serious damage to Savannah. Savannah required emergency repairs in Malta and then permanent repairs in Philadelphia at the Naval Shipyard. The task force commander called for Plunkett to join a screen for Savannah. The ships revived one aerial assault and another, and now they were able to restore power and get underway. As Savannah limped through the convoy heading for Malta, all the crews on the ships in the transport area stood along the rail and saluted as she passed. The British hospital ship, HMHS Newfoundland, was a 406-foot steamer. The ship was painted all white with wide green bands and a red cross on the hull. While the ships darkened at dust, hospital ships turned on all lights. The Hague Convention's prohibited attacks on hospital ships. As heartening as it is to have a hospital ship nearby, Plunkett and the other ships knew they were in harm's way. Concerned about the light in the transport area off Salerno, the task force commander ordered the Newfoundland and three other brightly lit ships further out to sea. At 5 o'clock on 13 September, the Newfoundland was deliberately hit by an air-launched glide bomb 40 nautical miles offshore of Salerno. It struck on the boat deck after the bridge. The ship was only carrying two patients, 34 crew members and 103 American and British nurses. Communications were lost, but more importantly, the firefighting equipment was completely shattered. By now, the ship had caught fire. There was another explosion, and it became clear that the oil tanks had also caught fire. The injured crew left the boat, and 12 crew members battled the fire for another 36 hours. The Plunkett came alongside the Newfoundland and Jim Feltz climbed over the rails and grabbed a fire hose. While Jim and his crew funneled water into the smoking holds, another party from the Plunkett gathered up the nurse's luggage and passed them onto the Plunkett. The Newfoundland was settling in deeper into a starboard list and the Plunkett's crew left the ship. The Plunkett would circle the disabled, burning ship screening for U-boats. Crew members wrote notes and tucked them into the nurse's luggage. Jim wrote a short note saying he was happy to help save the luggage. The ship was determined to be beyond repair and was towed further out to sea and intentionally scuttled on 14 September 1943. The crews had battled the fire for 36 hours, and of the people on board, six of the British staff nurses and all of the medical officers had been killed. On 15 September 1943, the Plunkett steamed into the channel at 13 knots bound for the transport area off Salerno and to take on fuel. The pressure on the beachhead had lessened, and the crew was secured from General Quarters at dawn and eating breakfast. The ship sounded General Quarters and Folk Wolf 109's F.E. 109 burst out of the sun. The gun crews on the Plunkett opened fire on the low-level bombers, and it was then Torpedo Man Frank Vrieskosil spotted two aircraft. It was determined to be just one aircraft, but he had dropped something. It was a glide bomb. Just recently, they had seen the destruction the bomb could cause, and now one was headed right for the plunket. Battery officer Ken Brown immediately computed in his mind, factoring the speed and bearing of his ship and determined it was a lethal threat. He yelled, take cover, though there wasn't enough time. A hundred yards away, dozens of Army Steve Doors had been unloading cargo from the holds of the Liberty ship SS James W. Marshall. The glide bomb flashed by Plunkett and struck the James Marshall's boat deck. The bomb exploded, sending bodies airborne, and fire flashed all over topside. The captain called for more steam. Jim felt was amidship near the torpedo tubes. Bombs were falling all around the pier. One bomb hit an LCT 241, which was a landing craft. Tank was amphibious and assault craft for landing tanks. The LCT was obliterated as Jim was watching it. There were 17 men aboard. With the LCT destroyed and the Marshall burning, four FW-190s turned their attention to the plunket. The captain now had the ship maneuvering at 25 knots on two boilers and had the ship turning from port to starboard at flank speed. A near miss. One bomb dove into the ship's wake 150 yards from the stern. A dive bomber circled to come in low and tight on the port beam. The Plunkett's machine guns opened up. The plane absorbed the shells without sign of damage. The action lasted just minutes. As quick as the planes came on the scene, it was over. The captain slowed the ship and they returned to shepherd the convoy. The following afternoon, while they were screening the cruiser Philadelphia as she pounded targets on the shore, two folk Focke-Wulfs came in off the port bow. The captain ordered speed and the guns opened up on the targets. Within minutes, both targets were destroyed. Jim Phelps from his position in the damage control party, watched geysers erupt by the holes of near misses and other times in the middle of nowhere. Jim allowed himself to think, they're guessing, by golly. After watching the left Wafa in action at Gala, Palermo, and now Salerno, Jim wondered, why wouldn't the left Wafa concentrate on a single ship? John Gallagher, Jim's good friend, asked Jim to cover his watch in the aft fire room. Jim and John were bunk neighbors and good friends, so Jim agreed. The plunket was nestled up to two other destroyers on the dock at Palermo. The number four boiler was supplying power to the idle destroyers alongside. Jim climbed down through the hatch and immediately sensed there was a problem. Something down in the hole was clacking in rhythm and loudly. Jim descended past the top watch. The other man in the hole was with him during this watch. As the pump man started up the ladder, he said to Jim, "Glands loose in the water pump, but it'll hold for now." The hell it would, Jim thought. Shutting down the pump meant killing power to the plunket and the destroyers alongside. Jim told the top watch sailor to get the chief. Jim said, "We have to switch fire rooms because the glands gonna bust off." Jim looked at the pump. Two ears with five-inch bolts held down the pump. They were loose and the racket was growing louder. There was no way to tighten the bolts while they were running 150 pounds of steam. The topwatch sailor hadn't been gone a minute when Jim decided he might not have another minute. Jim got on the phone and rang the bridge, telling them he was shutting it down. At that very moment, the gland blew and steam spewed from the pump at 150 pounds. At 600 pounds, a jet of high-pressure steam was powerful enough to cut off an arm. Steam at 600 pounds would fill the fire room in 4.5 seconds to 500 degrees. They timed their escape at best to 6.5 seconds. Jim often practiced closing the valves while blindfolded. There were 250 valves in the fire room. Though the 150 pounds of steam was far less than 600, it was blinding and still deadly. Jim scrambled up the eight rungs to the grating to close the valves. Jim went for the water first. He spun the wheel and cut off the supply of water. His dungarees and shirt were soaked with scalding water, and he grabbed the wheel on the drum and spun it with both hands shutting down the steam. The fire room was a thick cloud of steam as Jim felt for the ladder, The heat was burning his hands. One by one, he pulled himself up towards the closed hatch, the hatch opening now as the deck realized they had a problem. Jim passed through the hatch and rolled out on the deck like a man on fire. Jim's hands were beat red. Jim looked up to see John Gallagher dressed for liberty, grinning at him with his arms crossed. He said to Jim, You blew up my fire room. The Plunkett was now running patrols to Eustica and the Assilian Islands. All of the alien islands were captured by the Allies in August of 1943 during the invasion of Sicily. U-boats and E-boats seemed to be the biggest threat now. On about 9 October, Jim got word to fire up the number 2 boiler. The anchor chain started winding up the anchor, and Plunkett was underway. A minute later, word came down to light number one and three burners. Not only were they getting underway, the bridge rang from standard to full speed. A moment later, they went to flank speed. Word came down after they had cut in their two boilers. Another destroyer, the USS Buck, a DD-240, had been torpedoed some hours earlier, and they were going out for survivors. After escorting a convoy back to the United States... The buck had returned to the Mediterranean in late September of 1943 in support of Operation Avalanche, the landings at Salerno, Italy. Following the landings, the destroyer patrolled off the coast to protect the delivery of reinforcements and supplies to southern Italy. While on patrol off Salerno, Italy on 9 October, the buck was ambushed by German submarine U-616 and it was hit forward starboard by at least one and possibly two torpedoes. The warship flooded quickly, settling down forward and sinking within four minutes. Although most of the depth charges were set to safe before the destroyer was abandoned, a severe underwater explosion killed and wounded sailors in the water. His watch over, Jim climbed out of the hatch and made his way to the fantail to look at the ship's rooster tail. They'd never run at flank speed on all four boilers. Plunkett ran at flank for more than two hours and then throttled back when it entered in the vicinity of Buck's sinking. 43 miles southwest of the italian mainland at point licosa a nearby british ship reported that they had one survivor aboard the destroyer gleaves dd423 reported they had picked up two officers and 40 men so far at 1930 hours they sighted an object in the water and took the whaleboat to investigate minutes later they cranked the whaleboat back up with buck's assistant engineer on board in the wardroom, they treated for him for lacerations and noted the distinct possibility of internal injuries. Then he started talking and explained that they had picked up a radar contact about 5,000 yards just after midnight. The bridge rang full ahead and they charged after the contact. Just as the ship came up to speed, a torpedo slammed into the starboard side near the forward fire room and exploded. The engineer was blown over the side. An ensign ran to the fantail, yelling for the crew to set the depth charges to safe. Another lieutenant was now on the fantail, also calling for the depth charges to be set to safe, so they would not explode if the ship sank. It became obvious that they needed to abandon ship. The stern sunk, dragging down all of the depth charges that had been set to safe. Unfortunately, there was one 300-pounder that was not set to safe. When the ash can, or depth charge, reached the depth that was set 100 or 150 feet, it exploded. Later, a survivor would say, we thought we got them all. The concussion of the depth charge brutalizes men in the water. The explosion hit survivors like vicious kicks to the stomach and pelvis. The blast would enter the rectum and perforate the membranes of their abdomens, bruise their intestines, and open lesions on their lungs. Fifty men who hung on to one life raft dwindled to thirty by dawn. They'd seen planes all over the area the previous day, but nothing today until late in the morning. The Plunkett spotted three more injured survivors. A short time later, they heard shouts off the port bow and retrieved five more survivors. After they brought these men on board, they resumed listening. The Plunkett crept along at one-third, frequently in fog, stopping to listen for survivors. The reassuring sound of engines underway gave way to an unnerving silence that sailors on board a ship with U-boats around feared. They may have well heard the ticking of a bomb. It was 9 October and Jim Feltz was on deck. While on leave a while back, a Ouija board had made an unnerving prediction for Jim Feltz on this night. While he didn't believe in the prediction, he couldn't forget about it. Jim stood watching the searchlight reaching out into the fog and thought he could hear the ping of the ship sounding for subs. Jim was afraid. The Plunkett now had 15 men from the buck aboard. They arrived back in Palermo late in the afternoon the next day where ambulances were waiting to transfer the survivors and the dead to an army hospital. Jim notes in his diary that they had picked up 20 men. Of the 260 men aboard, 97 survived and 163 perished. On 1 November, three officers of the Buck penned a letter to Captain Burke to express their gratitude for what the men on the Plunkett had done. Through the rest of the month, Plunkett operated mostly out of Palermo. About this time, Jim received word that his battle station, while at general quarters, would no longer be amidships, with the repair party. Plunkett's engineering officer was about to elevate Jim's rating from fireman first class to water tender third class, a petty officer's rating. They determined his highest and best use was down in the hole. Now Jim would be weathering the action in the bowels of the ship. Jim did not know this at the time, but the promotion would save his life in the days ahead. After Jim managed to shut down the plant after the gland blew, Jim learned the importance of finding your way through the dark. Jim groped about the fire room blindfolded, learning where all the valves were at. This was not a practice the Navy required. It was more so Jim playing a hunch this kind of knowledge could serve him someday. At Christmas 1943, the men of the Plunkett feasted on the ship and later went to a party whose sailors included those that came off tin cans. A tin can was a common nickname for a destroyer. The nickname arose in World Wars I and II because the whole plating of the ship type was so thin the sailors claimed they were made from tin cans. In fact, a 45 caliber pistol bullet would penetrate it. The crew of the Plunkett had so much to be grateful for because they had skirted disasters that struck so many of their sister ships. During this lull, they played baseball, had their teeth fixed, went to church and ate ice cream. As they rang in the new year, in Mers El Kabir, a watch officer watched the men come back to the ship and noted their situation this way. moored starboard side to in Mirz El Kabir. From ye old berth one, we start a new year. Boiler four is liftoff, and so is the crew. On about 16 January 1944, Plunkett was underway on Operation Webfoot, a practice run for the actual Operation Shingle. The weather was bad, and 40 duck boats sank. Two days after Webfoot, Plunkett steamed away from Naples to neighboring Pazoli, the principal staging area for the Shingle convoys. They were part of an armada of 240 ships including destroyers, cruisers, minesweepers, and landing craft. On 21 January, Plunkett got underway screening 38 landing craft in the second wave. Right after dusk, the sonar operators picked up a sound contact. The captain worked the contacts and steered for more and more signal, and then they dropped the depth charges. Even though the topside crews reported an oil slick, no sinking was reported in the logbook. By late evening on D-Day, the landing craft had deposited more than 36,000 men and more than 3,000 vehicles on the beachhead. The term D-Day was used to refer to the first day of any planned invasion, not only the famous D-Day of Operation Overlord. Casualties were light. Several German bombers did penetrate the dome over the beachhead. Heavy anti-aircraft fire turned back the attack. Plunkett made smoke to screen the ships at dusk. The next day... The Plunkett would provide a scheduled bombardment on D Day plus two. The following day, Plunkett followed orders and patrolled the Seward side of the consolidated area of five knots. Plans for the bombardment were changed. Jim was still getting used to being down in the hole at general quarters. He didn't fancy it as much being topside when the action started. Not being able to see what was coming down on you was more unnerving than watching the silhouettes of Messerschmitt or Junkers JU-88s. The Junkers JU-88 is a German World War II Luftwaffe twin-engine, multi-role combat aircraft. The Messerschmitt BF-109 is a German World War II fighter aircraft that was, along with the Focke-Wulf FW-190, the backbone of the Luftwaffe fighter force. Jim had received some news from home and Betty, and some of the boys were coming home on leave. One local boy didn't pass the physical and was not drafted. Betty wrote that she wished that Jim hadn't passed the physical. It had been a year now since they had been together, and she was resigned to the fact that she might not see him for the duration, if at all. Late in the afternoon, the ship settled in condition white at 17.05 hours and darkened minutes later when the sun was setting. They were disappointed they were not given the opportunity to participate in the bombardment. They would not be disappointed for long. The ship's doctor was milling about his battle station when he spotted Two Dornier bombers in waning light high in the sky. The Dornier DO 217 was a bomber used by the German Luftwaffe during World War II as a more powerful de- development of the Dornier DO 17. It had a much larger bomb load capacity and had much greater range than a DO 17. Dive bombing and maritime strike capabilities using glide bombs were experimented with, considerable success being achieved. The Klaxon. Klaxon is a type of electromechanical horn or alerting device. Sounded on the ship, and the intercom crackled with the message, Enemy ships! General quarters! General quarters! All hands! Man your battle stations! On the starboard wing of the ship, the executive officer and captain looked up to the Dorney's coming and suddenly saw two glide bombs. Their trajectory was clear. They were headed for the plunket. At the same time, two junkers, JU-88, swept from the port side and starboard at least four and perhaps as many as six additional bombers swarmed on the edge of the dome that was now clamped down on the ship. Those in a position to observe the swarm of planes and the attention garnered by the Plunkett began to wonder, why were all these planes and bombs coming for us? There were other bigger targets nearby, such as the light cruiser Brooklyn. Perhaps the Germans mistook the Plunkett for the Brooklyn. There wouldn't be much time to ponder that. Captain Burke, ordered the helmsman to turn into the bombs at flank speed, preparing to give the bow as the target rather than the beam. The ship surged 27 knots and into the glide bomb's path. Speed made the ship harder to hit and was a priority in order to dodge the devastation of the glide bombs. Full steam ahead also took them away from neighboring ships Gleaves and Niblock, who could then provide gun support. The operators and the high-level bombers were still guiding their bombs towards Plunkett, and all Burke could do was hope their move to full steam would foil their calculations. Then, just above the ship, the two glide bombs spurted, and with a final burst of rocket propulsion, and slammed into the ship's wake. Since water is not very compressible, a near miss can cause much damage as the shock is transferred to the hull. Fortunately, the glide bombs exploded far enough not to damage the ship. Jim Phelps felt the blast in the hull. At least when he was topside in the midship repair party, he could see what was going on around the ship. In the hole, all he could do was wonder. All the guns were firing, and it sounded like Plunkett was putting up a good fight. Though the glide bombs missed, there was a swarm of Junker JU-88 bombers angling for the Plunkett. All batteries were opened up on them. The Plunkett's only defense was the guns and the rapid rudder changes. Burke made one rudder change after another. Moments after the glide bombs dropped into the wake, the 20 millimeter gun crew noticed something drop from under the belly of the plane about 800 yards to the stern of the ship torpedo they yelled the captain noted the track of the torpedo and had the helmsman rapidly turn the ship on a bearing parallel to its path crew members caught a glance at the torpedo as it streaked alongside on a parallel course and then beyond just yards away having dodged glide bombs and now a torpedo burke turned his attention to the two bombers He turned the ship broadside to present as many guns as possible in the direction of the incoming bombers. Suddenly, a bomb burst 20 yards from the ship from a threat no one saw coming. It was now clear the Plunkett was under attack by low-level and high-level bombers. Jim Feltz had recently wondered, what if the Germans had concentrated on just one ship? And now it seemed exactly that's what was happening. All guns on the Plunkett were blazing. One German bomber absorbed fire and was seen peeled off trailing smoke. It was classified a probable kill. About 12 minutes into the attack, another bomber was shot down. The attack was sustained and seemed relentless. The speed and rudder changes seemed arbitrary, and yet everyone knew deliberate. Jim Phelps knew each change was made to thwart a lethal threat. Each rudder change was precipitated by intelligence coming from the lookouts. Just before 1,800 hours, a JU-88 was lining up the plunket at 17,000 feet. The German pilot began his dive. His dive was 45 degrees and accelerated to 350 miles per hour. Tracers flew by his cockpit but missed. Moments later, he released his payload. A stick of 550 bombs were streaking towards the plunket. A stick is a number of bombs dropped from a place with one push on a release button. The bomb streaked toward a target and landed in a straight line and explode. The first, second, and third bombs fell short of the stern. Bomb number four hit the water and exploded just 20 yards off the stern. A near miss. The near miss blew off the Plunkett's port screw, or propeller. At 17.58 hours, the fifth bomb in the stick fell directly on the 1.1-inch gun. In the forward fire room, the lights went off. Jim felt the ship thrust downward. The explosion rattled the men off the bridge like dice in a cup. Some felt the explosion as a thump. It was obvious to everyone a bomb had struck the ship. The lights in the fire room flickered and came on, and the chief petty officer's voice in Jim's phone said, Go see what happened. Jim scrambled up the ladder, spun the dogs on the hatch. He yelled, Down! We've been hit! There was a wall of fire from the starboard to port. Jim looked for men with fire hoses. The damage control party was not there. There were ten men in that crew, which previously included Jim, but now he saw no one working the fire. The nearby wreckage where the damage control party was stationed told him there might not be anyone alive. Long before Jim came aboard the plunket, he was told, unless ordered, do not leave your battle station. You do not make your own decisions. With the ship blazing and the magazines and depth charges on the fantail capable of exploding at any time, Jim did what he knew he was not supposed to do under any circumstances. He made his own decision. He yelled down, I'm going out. The explosion obliterated the 1.1-inch gun mount and every man assigned to it. The men would forever be listed as missing in action. The bomb cratered through the main deck by the number six gun. Men were torn to pieces. For the moment, the plunket was down and reeling. Jim moved some wreckage aside and opened a locker to get a billy pump and water going. A billy pump or handy billy is an emergency portable pump that for decades was commonly placed aboard seafaring ships. Jim fired the pump's engine. The other firefighter dropped the hose over the side of the ship. A moment later, Jim had water trained on the burning ship at 60 gallons per minute. Many more men and much more water was needed to save the plunket. The plunket was still under attack. The squadron commander was on the TBS asking for smoke to shroud the plunket from the planes. They needed cover, and running on one of the screw made them an easier target. The plunket was still under attack. The squadron commander was on the TBS asking for smoke to shroud the plunket from the planes. They needed cover. And running on one screw made them an easy target. An order to flood the magazines was given. The valves were turned but the magazines did not flood. After a few moments they discovered the fire mains were down. The forward momentum of the ship was spreading the fire aft toward the magazines. A runner was dispatched to alert the captain who then ordered all stop. The men in the forward engine room complied. The men in the aft engine did not, except for the three that escaped. They were all dead. In the meantime, more handybillies were being placed in operation. Some men began to throw ammunition overboard. On the back deck, depth charges had broken loose, and some were rolling on the deck. One depth charge was on fire. An officer was sent to see that the depth charge was set to safe. Then crew members began throwing the depth charges over the side. Because of the quick thinking of an electrician, they were able to turn valves on and now had adequate water to fight the fire. At 18.03 hours, the Luftwaffe planes broke off the attack. The entire attack lasted only 20 minutes. The Plunkett had exhausted 1,500 rounds of 1.1-inch, 200 shells of 5-inch, and 2,500 rounds of 20-millimeter ammunition. What the 20mm guns put up in those 20 minutes was 27% of the ammunition the Plunkett would expend in the entire war. Jim Feltz spent 10 minutes on the Handy Billy, moving among the flames, tangled metal, and mangled men and parts of men. Sensing there was now enough manpower to fight the fire and knowing he was supposed to be at his own battle station, he surrendered the nozzle to a topside crew member. It was 1810 hours. The bomb had hit 12 minutes earlier and the fire was coming under control the chief engineering officer laid into him when he came back down into the fire room for leaving his battle station jim explained that he had sprung from the hole because the midship repair party wasn't fighting the fire there was no midship repair party and he didn't think that he had a choice the chief didn't disagree he just said what he was supposed to say not long ago jim and the crew had looked forward to seeing some action for jim and many members of the crew they'd seen all they needed to see On the wing of the bridge, the captain was hanging over to hear damage reports. The fire was now out. The men had done a commendable job while the attack raged on. Quick thinking and ferocious attacking of the flames by the damage control party saved the ship. A little initiative and disobeying an order helped. They had splashed two bombers with a third probably and damaged a fourth. But they knew the toll on the plunket would be great. Besides the great work of the gunners, the captain's maneuvering of the ship was masterful. They avoided devastating glide bombs, torpedoes, and bombs from 10 to 14 planes. The Navy would later say of Burke, he fought his ship so heroically. Later, James Forrestal commended the gunnery officer Ken Brown at Enzio for maintaining continuous fire against enemy attackers. In the early morning hours, they limped back towards Naples. As they neared Naples, they could see the flashes and hear the thunder that told them the city was under bombardment by the Luftwaffe. The stricken ship turned and headed instead for Palermo. At dawn, the search for survivors continued. The search required the crew to grapple with twisted metal, some of which was thrown over the side. Amid the wreckage were severed limbs, arms, hands, and bodies of countless men. There were bodies without heads. The damage was surveyed and pictures were taken. The grim task of identifying bodies began. More dreadful than what they were finding topside was what they found below in the engine room. At the bottom of the ladder were men scorched by fire and blanched white by steam. Much of their flesh was fallen away. Jim Phelps was still only 18 years old. There were things he saw that day that he could not talk or think about for a long time. He was too young that night. For the rest of his life he would think, of that evening as the night we had a problem. It was not the night a bomb hit us. Jim Feltz was a young man who should have been in a five-and-dime sweeping floors of dirt, not decks of severed limbs. In the late afternoon, they extracted and recovered all the fallen shipmates they could from the wreckage. On the fantail, men were preparing the bodies for transfer off the ship. The bodies were prepared with as much dignity as possible and at 14.30 hours, a patrol boat came out to escort Plunkett into the harbor. Four Allied aircraft patrolled the airspace immediately over the ship. Plunkett was met dockside by the hospital corps with stretchers and ambulances. Alongside were two chaplains. They carried off the 24 dead and noted that 29 more were missing. 53 men were presumed dead. 44 men had been wounded. 17 men were wounded so badly they needed to be hospitalized. 11 of those 17 were badly wounded, and countless other men were wounded in a way that nobody at the time could understand. With the dead and wounded removed, the rest of the crew was bunked on a Liberty ship and the Plunkett was moved into dry dock. Jim Felt started to record the lost shipmates by station in his journal right after the battle. He had lost one of his best friends, John Gallagher, on the 20 millimeter gun. Snyder and Anderson were in the number two repair party his former repair party. Jim was laying in his bunk looking up at the depression above him. John Gallagher previously filled the depression above him on the Plunkett. While they were still in Palermo, 53, telegrams arrived in the United States that read, The Navy Department deeply regrets to inform you that your son died of wounds following action in the performance of his duty in the service of his country. When Plunkett came out of dry dock in Palermo and steamed east for home, The men stored secret supplies of booze, mostly wine, in their compartments. The crew took risks they wouldn't take before. Clearly, the men suffered from effects of PTSD before it was identified. Captain Burke tolerated the behavior for a while. Finally, when he could no longer tolerate it, he walked through every compartment confiscating bottles of wine. They steered for Bermuda first and on 17 February 1944 steered for home. They encountered several severe storms on the way home, rolling the ship once to about 52 degrees. In Brooklyn, the yard workers were waiting for them. The Navy was granting passes, not just weekend passes, but something neither Jim or anyone on the ship had ever seen, a 30-day pass. Some of the crew felt obligated to visit the families of their fallen shipmates. The task wouldn't be easy. The families asked questions, which brought back images and pain the men were trying to suppress. With 30 days leave, Jim took the train home to Overland, Missouri and went to see Betty. This was the time when everything would come together, thought Jim. They'd go to Toontown, and Jim would hit the dance floor with Betty. Betty would drop her hands and jaw in shock as Jim showed his moves. Of course, that didn't happen like Jim dreamed. At the end of his leave, he flew back to New York, and during a layover, telephoned Betty and asked her to come to New York and marry him. Jim would say, there was no bended knee, no mush. I never did ask her. I called and told her to come to New York. Her father, the colonel, had a fit, never having resigned himself to her marrying a stock man. But Betty paid him no mind and came to New York, and they took their blood tests. They were then waylaid by bureaucracy and Navy permission and missed the original target date to get married on 4 4 and so they were married at Baptist Mission Church in New York on 4 5 44, one day later. Jim paid $1.25 for the night at the Hotel Astoria, and the next day they relocated to the sentry where the room was 75 cents a night. On 5 May 44, the Plunkett departed from a repair dock. Jim scribbled in his journal on 11 May found out we're going to Belfast, Ireland. From Belfast, the scuttle butt circulated all over the ship. Something big was happening. The invasion of Europe was imminent. They all knew that, but that was all they knew, until 29 May, when an unexpected guest came aboard the Plunkett. On that day, Jim's entry into his journal read, John Ford, movie producer and chief, came aboard to take pictures of invasion we think. The crew all knew of John Ford. Ford was an iconic American film director, best known today for his westerns, though none of the films that won him the Academy Award for Best Direction. The Informer, 1935, The Grapes of Wrath, 1940, How Green Was My Valley, 1941, and The Quiet Man, 1952, are of this genre. World War II was a watershed for Ford. He made films for the Navy Department's Photographic Unit, two of which, The Battle of Midway, 1942, and December 7, 1943, won Academy Awards for Best Documentary, and working for the Office of Strategic Services, he was present at Omaha Beach on D-Day. Having Ford on board generated all kinds of scuttlebutt. They knew for sure if Ford was around something epic was in the works. On 3 June, the Plunkett got underway at 0200 hours with four battleships, four heavy cruisers, and ten destroyers. Don't know where we were going to hit, Jim wrote. At 700 hours, the Plunkett learned the invasion had been postponed 24 hours to let the bad storm and the channel blow through. At 1,900 hours, the convoy turned back in the direction of Normandy. Jim Feltz wrote in his journal, All you can see is ships. Don't know how many. On 5 June, Plunkett veered away from the battleship to screen the attack transports. The next day, at 100 hours, Plunkett arrived offshore between Le Havre and Cherbourg, just off of Omaha Beach. Ford would later note Plunkett was in the lead of the invasion. Jim noted the aerial bombardment of the beaches in the morning. And then at H hour... And GIs streamed for shore in landing craft. The Plunkett would defend against air raids, fire for ground support, and chase down a U boat on D Day Plus 2. A week after D Day, Plunkett was involved in a friendly fire incident. Plunkett fired a number of shells at a U boat that struck a British cable laying ship, the HMS Monarch, killing two men. Two United States destroyers, Plunkett and Davis, picked up the cable ship and escort on radar. The destroyers fired Starshell and Plunkett flashed challenges. Monarch had been ordered to follow but did not respond. It is not known if the cable ship observed the challenge and had no recognition signal book aboard. It was the duty of Trentonian and escort to reply to such challenges, but Plunkett used a directional lamp, and it was apparently not seen by the escort. After one minute without response, Plunkett opened up fire on Monarch. Trentonian turned on recognition lights and then all ships' lights, but the fire continued. Monarch was hit and severely damaged with loss of two dead and some 30 crew wounded. The destroyer's fire was shifted to Trentonian before it ceased fire. Trentonian proceeded to Monarch, rescuing men thrown overboard and treating wounded. A board of inquiry later found Plunkett had perhaps been too quick to open fire, but no blame could be attached. The Plunkett bombarded all positions along the coast, and at the end of June, worked with several other destroyers and two battleships to bombard Cherbourg to open up the harbor to the Allies. The Plunkett moved back to the Mediterranean that summer, and while there, shot down their fifth confirmed during the war. In August, they bombarded the southern coast of France near Nice. This last action ended the Plunkett's time in Normandy in their fifth invasion campaign. For the rest of the war, they patrolled the Mediterranean, bombarding enemy positions, providing fire support. The Plunkett spent Christmas at Mirs El-Kabir, a port in the Mediterranean Sea near Oran in Oran Province, northwest Algeria. Jim wrote he was very homesick and disappointed in the lousy chow. The war was ending for the Plunkett and they got underway for the United States on 28 December 1944. Plunkett would make one last run to England in May of 1945. They patrolled the east coast all spring and then headed to the Pacific In Japan, arriving just after the Japanese surrendered. In a memoir worked up right after the war was over, one of the ship's officers noted that during the war, Plunkett had fired 9,285 rounds of 20 millimeter, 1,842 rounds of 1.1 inch, 12,458 rounds of 40 millimeter, and 1480 rounds of 5 inch. The ship participated in every major invasion of Europe, and it is believed to be the only major warship so distinguished. In February 1954, the United States transferred Plunkett to Taiwan. In 1972, the ship was stricken, and in 1975, 35 years after its launch, it was scrapped. When Plunkett steamed into South Carolina in January of 1946, the Navy detached Jim Feltz. Jim knew before they docked that they were letting him go. He was packed and ready. He was a petty officer by this time and owned his own fire room. He was making $350 per month when they told him he was good to go. Man, I was gone, Jim said. Jim was discharged on 8 February 46th, just shy of four years served. He left quickly, without fanfare and a few goodbyes, desperate to get home to Betty. In his blues, he rode a Greyhound bus half-filled with men going home. The bus broke down on the way to St. Louis, and Jim and the other servicemen strung out on the road and thumbed to hitchhiked to ride. Jim had not told anyone he was coming home. He arrived in St. Louis at 6 o'clock in the morning and phoned his sister and asked if they could come pick him up. They dropped him off at Betty's and then knocked on the door. Surprise, surprise, said Jim. During his service, Jim almost traveled around the world. Jim was fortunate to have his job waiting for him when he returned home. He worked in a parts warehouse for an international harvester, DeSoto dealer. He then moved to St. Charles County off Fifth Street, where Noah's Ark used to stand, and streets of St. Charles' now. Jim moved to St. Peter's in 2006. Jim married Betty, Ruth Feltz, 1926-2004, to on 5 April 1944. Jim and Betty had three boys. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee Real Allstate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesfri at com. R e n e e e s s a r y at allstate.com if you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need reach out to her